So I invested only in two deals in 2020. And 2021, it'll probably be in that same, maybe two to three deals. But I'm just gonna consistently invest. And what, what I'm gonna look for is markets, properties that are in areas that are in high demand and I think are probably right in that sort of A minus to B minus space, maybe C plus space. We're just right in the middle of the market. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is James Eng from Old Capital. James is a professional lender on multifamily real estate and a passive investor in multifamily syndications. So we're getting both of those angles today. We're going to talk about the changes to the real estate market due to the coronavirus and all of the impacts on you know, the finances and everything and what's happened with occupancy, what's happened with the eviction moratorium so far, what's happened with lending requirements, all that great stuff. We're getting into all of that. And as I mentioned, James is also a passive investor in real estate syndications. And we talk about what he looks for in a real estate syndication or a real estate syndicator. So that is information for you to absorb and decide if that makes sense for you for your passive real estate investments. He's one of the uh, one of the leading experts in the multifamily field and uh, has invested in a number of deals, sees a lot of deals come across his desk. So got to figure he definitely knows what he's talking about. I learned a lot today and I'm sure you will as well. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Vogt. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy, and uh, that's, a, that's definitely a good sign. And I really wanted to focus today on some of the changes, uh, at least you know, from your observations of things, or not changes, related to you know, COVID, the eviction moratoriums, all those things that you know, most people out there are aware of, whether or not they're a real estate investor. It stands to reason that, okay, this is, there's this eviction moratorium. How have, how have all of these real estate investors not gone out of business with tenants not paying? You know, let's break into that. What have your you know, overall observations been? Has it been doom and gloom or have things held up or you know, what do you see? Yeah, so I, w- I would look at it from two ways. One as a limited partner, one as a general partner on these deals. And just, I mean, from uh, the COVID perspective, I would say apartments have not, they have sort of like, it's this is like resound or not, what's the best word? It's like it's re-emphasized how good multifamily is, right? So the reason I liked multifamily in 2015 was it wasn't one tenant. It wasn't I could move out tomorrow. I didn't have one day leases like hotels, right? That's the reason I like multifamily. And so you have diversified tenant stream. You have it can't be replaced by Amazon yet. <laughs> it has, uh, you know, you can get good financing, non-recourse financing, long-term debt, and then your tenants have year-long leases. And guess what? When all the stay-at-home went into effect in March, April, May, guess what? You could find your tenant. So if they weren't paying, you were knocking on that door asking for the rent. And so I, in terms of, you know, is every tenant paying right now? No, right? But I would say bad debt, as a percentage of income previous to COVID was probably about one to 2%, okay? Right now it's probably in that four to 5%, which is not great, right? But in comparison to where you've seen collections drop in hotel or retail, or even some 
you know, larger office buildings, you've seen those drop and just go down significantly where they couldn't cover expenses, they couldn't cover debt service. What we're seeing is that majority of deals, if they were performing pre-COVID, they're doing fine now, right? Maybe your cash on cash isn't as high, but overall they're doing fine. The, the deals that had issues before, and maybe they had to take forbearance and they didn't make their payment for three to six months, and now they're having to catch that up, that's going to be tough. That's going to be tough for some guys. So, you know, majority of what I lend on is in Texas and uh, what I'm invested in is in Texas. So that's, I guess, a microcosm of, of the nation. But, you know, I would say the coast, there's definitely uh, more pressure on, on rental income in California, in New York, in some of these markets in terms of uh, just the population isn't going there. And people, because of remote work, they're just not living in those markets right now. And so they're not paying those, those high rents. So majority of the deals that I invest in, the rents are anywhere from $1,000 to maybe $1,500. Yeah, compared to you know, any of the major markets on the coast that you, know, you mentioned or, or DC or whatever, those rents are, are an absolute steal. Now, you know, we've seen in, in the you know, popular culture, whatever we've seen, Joe Rogan moved to Texas, you know, Elon Musk keeps talking about it. I don't know whether what the current status of that is, but, you know, it really matters more whether the average Joe is moving from LA or New York City to DFW or whatever. Have you seen like a lot of that happening? Is there a lot of migration coming to the bigger cities in, in Texas just to, well, Austin, just to get away from, you know, some of these uh, more locked down cities that are very expensive that people have little incentive to be there in the first place at this point. Yeah, I would see I would say Austin's getting a lot of press right now, but Austin still is quite small compared to DFW in Houston. And so you might see the population of sort of Austin MSA at maybe two to three million people, um, depending on what counties you count. But you have to remember DFW, Houston, they're like seven, eight, nine million people. And so the size of the market in Austin is just not nearly the size. And so what Austin has to figure out is really there's two freeways that go north south and that's about it in Austin. And so they've got to figure out with this number number of people moving here, how are we going to fit all these people in to Austin and sort of keep that charm of a small city with a college town with government all in sort of you know the downtown uh, block there. So um, you know I I I like Austin DFW, Houston. I like those major markets in Texas right now. Nice, nice. So another thing that you know seems to come up a bill that keeps getting wrong for the last couple of years. You know, you and I became multifamily investors around the same time. I was a little bit after you, but I remember ever since I started, kind of the the old dogs, were, if you will, were sitting it out because oh, cap rates are so low today. They're not going to go any lower, and they're going to go flying up, and all you guys are going to lose your shirts. That hasn't been the case, but times are different now. Cap rates are lower now. It's hard to imagine they're going to go any lower. With your you know, crystal ball, nobody can predict the future, right? But from a lender and investor standpoint, what do you guys you know, anticipate for the next few years? I mean, are they going to keep getting compressed? I mean, how can that happen? The, the short answer is it's all relative, right? So um, a couple of years ago, in a savings account, you might've got 1% on your savings. Right now it's 0.01. It literally went to zero. And before it was a meaningful amount that I would get at the end of a month. Now it's like, (laughs) I don't even notice, right? Like you go to Starbucks one time, that that was all the interest that you earned on your savings account. 
And so now instead of when it, in 2015, when I started investing, you would probably start maybe eight, nine, 10% cash on cash year one, year two. That's what you're gunning for. Now it's probably five, six, 7% cash on cash is what you're trying to hit. And, you know, so from a relative basis, 6% seems like a home run compared to 0.01%. But obviously you're taking risk, right? So I would say number one, cap rates have come down and NOIs have essentially been flat in the last 12 months. And that's allowed prices to pretty much be stable because the cap rates have compensated for flat NOI or decline NOI from year over year. But I would say in 2015, people were like, man, this thing's been running for five years. You can't invest now. And what I did was I said, well, I'm going to invest, try to invest in a deal a quarter. And I don't know where the top is going to be exactly, but I could have sat there from 2015 to 2020 and not done any deals. I did take a little bit of pause during COVID, during lockdown. I was like, all right, I'm going to, there wasn't many deals happening anyways. So I invested only in two deals in 2020 and 2021, it will probably be in that same, maybe two to three deals but I'm just going to consistently invest. And what, what I'm going to look for is markets, properties that are in areas that are in high demand. And I think are probably right in that sort of A minus to B minus space, maybe C plus space. We're just right in the middle of the market because in Dallas, there's probably 25, 30,000 units that are being built right now. And so as those units come on, there's going to be pressure on the top end right? In terms, and then in terms of, you know, C to C minus, they're going to see a lot of pressure on those jobs right now. And there's just not as much cushion there. So as long as you don't way overpay for sort of a B deal, I think that's a safe spot to be in your 11 to $1,200 a month rent. And you're, in, you're probably buying eighties, maybe nineties construction stuff here in Dallas. And I think I like that spot right now. Hmm. Okay. That has been, you know, throughout this time, you know, in my experience in this space, that was kind of one of the, for want of a better term, one of the memes that, you know, when, when things go bad, you want to be in a certain class because the people who live in a class properties can't afford to live there anymore. So they move out and, you know, it all kind of shifts downward, but that seems to not have been a hundred percent correct in in pertaining to what you said about there being pressure on the jobs for the C-class population, you know, that is making it more difficult to be a C-class investor. And that does make that middle band of you know B, C-plus, A-minus class more attractive, which I think is one of the really interesting developments that I'm not sure many people were talking about before the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean right now, what we're seeing is that the Cs are still like jam-packed with people just because of the amount of affordability that people can, where else can you live really on the seaside? But I mean, the next step after C is really mobile home parks. And so I've invested in mobile home parks, but I mean, instead of $900 rents, I guess you got $500 lot rents. But in terms of that's the next spot, right? And so I don't, I don't know, that's a big jump for people. And so I think most people, the C-class properties are still going to stay full. Um, and you know, one of the things that's come up is sort of cap rates, right? So in terms of, I would say in 2000, let's say 14, 15, the A cap, an A cap deal would be a class A deal might be 5%, 
and B's would be six and a half, and then the C would be like 8% cap. And those essentially all went to 5% to 6% in 2019. And now they've all gone from to 4% to 5% now. So it's compressed by about 100 basis points in the last year. And that's really a function of interest rates coming down um, in the space as well. And so what I like to see is even if I'm buying at a four cap, if I can put good debt at two and a half percent and sort of fix that in, or even get a floating rate with an interest rate cap, then I feel comfortable. Well, I'm glad you brought up the topic of debt. You know, being a lender is obviously it's going to come up, and I'm going to want to pick your brain a lot. It's close about to it. my heart. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's how you butter your bread. So, have you seen a shift um, in terms of what you know sponsors are looking for in terms of the the loan products that they want? Are they more willing to take a floating rate loan with a cap, or are they looking for more fixed long term debt? Some of those long-term debts can come with some pretty hefty prepayment penalties, all those things. So, you know, what has, has there been a change there or is it, you know, steady as she goes as before? I mean, um, so after COVID, they essentially came out and said, look, we're not going to raise the short-term interest rate, which is either LIBOR or SOFR, which a lot of these deals are priced off of. And so that basically allowed you to buy interest rate caps at pretty cheap amounts. I mean, we can do it. We did a $20 million loan. Interest rate cap was like $35,000 for three years. So it was super cheap. So essentially what that means is that that trader doesn't think interest rates are going above that number that you picked as your, as your cap. Right. So, so right now, you know, so for LIBOR, like let's say 10 basis points. And you could go buy a strike rate of 1%, which means if it goes above one, you get paid. But if it doesn't, then you threw the $35,000 in the trash, except that it was required per your loan docs, right? And so we're seeing a lot of people go to the floating rate right now because you're able to get the same leverage. And Freddie has a product that's 10-year, it's a 10-year loan. And you're only locked out for one year and then you go to 1% prepay. And so what that's allowed is before you had to do a bridge loan. You had to do a three to five year bridge loan and then uh, refinance in that time period and if refinance or sell. And if you didn't, then you had this maturity and the bridge lender could say, well, uh, you couldn't refinance because COVID or you know whatever happened, financial crisis, and now you're stuck. So I didn't like that for first, second, third time buyers to have a maturity in three years. So a lot of people did Fannie and Freddie debt, which you talked about, and it had yield maintenance on it or step down prepay. And that'll, that just sort of, they get stuck in these deals. And so I would say if it's over $10 million in your purchase price and your loan's above seven and a half, a lot of people are looking at the Freddie conventional floater right now and just sort of buying interest rate caps for the first three years. Interesting. Okay. And that yield maintenance is important because rates have fallen so significantly and the maintenance is based on the rate on the loan compared to the rate of a 10 year, I think it's 10 year treasury, right? And yeah, it just looks at, it looks at a comparable, looks at a comparable because you have to, so what happens is let's say you buy, a, a, if you get a Fannie loan and it's $10 million at 5%, that someone actually goes out and buys that loan, right? So they might securitize it, but essentially an investor owns that loan. So you owe that guy 5% for 10 years. <laughs> and then let's say in year three, you say, well, hey, hey guys, you know, I'm out of this deal. I don't want to pay you. They're like, well, that's fine. You can, you can pay us off, but pay us all these interest payments for the next seven years and you're good to go. That's essentially what yield maintenance is. And that 
number can be, it can be 10%, it could be 20% of the loan amount. And so when it's that high, uh, it just makes it hard to get out of the loan. And so you have to do a loan assumption typically on it. That's rough. That's rough. I mean, we, yeah, we've seen some folks run into that problem. Another thing that I, I noticed change pretty early on, uh, right when COVID hit, we closed the deal right as it became apparent COVID was, was coming around the bend and uh, you know, lenders increased reserve requirements. And that makes sense, right? Because, uh, okay, at that point, nearly a year, well, not quite a year ago yet, but nobody knew you know, what's going to happen, right? It looks like the, the sky might be falling. So lenders, they either want to make sure deals are really secure or they want to just kill them as much as possible to manage risk, right? right? Have you seen you know, a, a decrease in you know, required reserves or anything like that? Or, 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 or you're a lender yourself, right? Are those getting opened up um, lately and kind of renormalized or where do we stand yeah, there? So, yeah, so what happened, um, so COVID hits, once Trump sort of shuts down, nobody can fly into or out of America. That's, that's when you knew it was for real. When they canceled the NBA, you knew that was for real. They essentially came out and said, we need, you need to put up about 10% of the loan amount. So that was 12 months of principal and interest. It was 12 months of taxes, 12 months of insurance, 12 months of replacement reserve. So 10% of the loan amount you had to put up at close. And everyone's like, holy smokes, that's a lot. And people who had the close, they did it, right? Because they had half a million hard day one. They, they had earnest money that was already live and they, they had to close. But then in April and May, there was probably a two-month window when it became a buyer's market. For those two months, it was a buyer's market. And everyone knew that you had to put up those reserves. And so now you could bake that in to your offer. And so the offers that came in were super low because you had to all of a sudden put up 10% of the loan amount, right? So instead of getting 80% leverage, you got 70% because you're putting up that equity. And so after, I would say March, April, May, not that many transactions happened except a couple of refinances, things like that. And in June and July, um, Toward the middle of the summer, Fannie and Freddie sort of pulled back. They said, look, this COVID thing wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be. Uh, let's go back to 5% of the loan amount. So they just took off. They just did P&I now. So they did 12 months of P&I on Fannie, nine months P&I on Freddie conventional. And with that, that's about 5% of the loan. And people started baking that in. And the thing that happened was all these other banks, recourse bank lenders, CMBS, non-recourse bridge lenders, they were gone. They were gone from the market. So Fannie and Freddie, they had all the deals now. And so they're saying, all right, why are we going to change the reserves? I'm getting 12 <laughs> months P&I. I mean, at, from a lending standpoint, you're sitting here, all right, I'm already doing a 125 debt service coverage. I'm already doing stabilized deals. I'm already putting all, I have all these things in place. And my delinquency is 1% on all the deals I did pre-COVID. Now, during COVID, I'm getting a 12-month P&I reserve on top of that, right? Which is another 5% of the loan that I'm holding to make sure that I hit a 125 in a year. And so Fannie and Freddie were doing like 70, 80% of the multifamily loans out there in Q3 and Q4. And so now, uh, beginning of 2021, a lot of non-recourse bridge lenders, a lot of CMBS, all those guys are coming back to the market. So once Fannie and Freddie starts dropping their percentage of deals that they are doing in the multifamily space, like 50 to 60%, let's say they control the market, 50 to 60% of the market, then they will probably um, lighten up on the reserves. But right now, it's not hurting their volume. They're still doing a ton of volume, so they don't care. Interesting. Okay. Well, 
Hmm. We'll have to keep an eye out for that. Yeah. Now, while we have you, before we take a break, I wanted to really pick your brain as a passive investor from your passive investing experience. What are, when you're looking at a, a deal or a sponsor or you know whatever, a passive investment opportunity, what are the top maybe two or three things that you look for that if it's not there, then you're just moving on? Um, so the first thing is uh, the sponsor. And I've got to know the sponsor. And I've got to be able to call the sponsor. And for me, that's if I call them right now and say, tell me about this deal, they pick up the phone and call me back. So I got to know the sponsor pretty well. Uh, Number two, I would say it has to be a deal that I can see. So for some people that doesn't work, they live in California and they're getting deals in, you know, Atlanta and they can't go see every property. To me, I have to be able to go and drive it. So that just ends up me doing a lot of deals in DFW but I've done deals in Austin, San Antonio because I'm in those markets almost quarterly. And then I would say at the beginning, my focus was on cash flow. And um, 2015, 2016, all my deals had a cash flow component day one, even if it was just four or five, 6%. And then sort of 18, 19, I got a little bit, I don't know what the right word is, cavalier. And I was like, all right, I can do heavy value at deals where it's essentially like a zero, zero, and then all the money at the end. I was okay with that. Um, But now 2021, I'm back on, all right, what's my day one cash on cash? And if I can underwrite to that number, and I I understand every forecast is up and to the right. (laughs) (laughs) um, But if I can sit on a cash on cash of five, six, 7%, in the first year. And I can see how you got to those numbers. And I understand the forecast is not going to be perfect, but if I can see that for the next two to three years, and I like the property, I drive the property, I like the sponsor, then I'm usually good to go on investing in that deal. Cool. Interesting. Good. I'm glad I asked that question. Well, right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Are you looking for out-of-state investment properties? We have partnered with an innovative investment property platform, and you can start evaluating investment properties right now by going to PassiveWealthStrategy.com slash turnkey. Go create your free account and start evaluating out-of-state rentals today. Your free account comes with some pretty cool things, a built-in cash flow calculator, financing calculators and resources, and helpful articles and a knowledge base to take your rental investing to the next level. This platform has rental properties all across the country, including in Texas, both of the Carolinas, Florida, Arizona, and more. It's a huge list. I'm not going to list them all. You have to go there to find out more. To create your free account and start evaluating out-of-state investment properties today, go to PassiveWealthStrategy.com slash turnkey. One last time, to create your free account and start evaluating out-of-state investment properties today, go to PassiveWealthStrategy.com slash turnkey. Back to the show. All right, James, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I hope so. All right. I'm sure you are. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? I'm still trying to think about this answer. You know, I think, I mean, is it, I guess it's not fair to say podcasts, but it's almost like headphones. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. Because I would say in the last 
I would say in the last four or five years, I have learned more from podcasts, from things like that. But it's been, it's not because I've been necessarily been in the car, but when I'm anywhere, I can just pop in headphones and listen to anything. Um, so I would say, I, I don't know if that's a cop-out answer, uh, but that's, that's probably, podcasts have probably changed my life more than anything in the last four or five years. Good. Well, no, I, I don't think it's a cop-out answer. You're investing <laughs> your, your time in it. They're free. I think headphones is the, an even better answer, right? I have a, a nice pair of headphones are getting kind of old now, yeah. but you know, why cheap out on that? Especially if you listen to them all the time, you like get a nice pair, spend some money, get the warranty if you're concerned about them going bad, but you know, enjoy. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to modify my answer sure. slightly. So I bought two things pre COVID. Um, I bought a Logitech webcam and a, a blue Yeti mic. And so when I record uh, podcasts or even YouTube videos or whatever, or zoom meetings. So all I've done in the last year is zoom meetings <laughs> that has, I hope improve the quality of those interactions. And I, you know, we've hired people, we've won deals, we've, you know, all those things have been better because of those two things. So to me in the next year, webcam, mic, um, are going to be key components to, um, improving your business. Absolutely. I totally agree. It only feels, I have a Logitech as well. Sometimes you get on a call with a guy who's obviously got like a DSLR or something really sweet. And it's like, I don't, I can't drop that much. And you feel inadequate. Yeah, exactly. And you feel inadequate at that point. (laughs) And it's all until, you know, you do a video with somebody and they're on their phone. Right. And, (laughs) and it's horizontal. It's just the vertical. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment? you ever made? I'm trying. I mean, you know, I like to think, I mean, I'm a pretty positive guy. And so even if I completely blow money on something, I always look for the positive spin on it. I'm I'm trying to think of, I gotta come back. Can we come back to that one? Sure. Yeah. Think about it. I don't know. Well, my favorite question, the end of show number three, what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? So I'm going to steal this from Howard Marks. Are you familiar with Howard Marks? I know his name, but I don't know why. Okay. Howard Marks, he is, um, he writes a memo uh, for Oak Tree Capital. So he started Oak Tree Capital and he puts out a memo for the last 30 years. So he is a distressed a distressed debt investor. And when he puts out his memos, he, uh, Warren Buffett's like, if it hits my email, it's the first thing I read. And he, he wrote a book called The Most Important Thing. And one of the things he talked about is a lot of times people think that the higher the return something is, the better it is. So when you look at investment pitches from syndicators and things like that, you're like, okay, this is a 20% IRR versus a 15. Which one do I take? Most people take the 20, but usually within that 20, that means that the volatility of that investment is that much higher. So the volatility of that actual return happening is actually probably a spread of, it could go to zero or it could be a 40% return. So the chart that he had in his book was really like, okay, if someone's projecting, like a lot of people who I invest with, they are pretty conservative and they have an IRR of 12. 
and you're like 12% IRR, who's investing in that deal? It doesn't make any sense. But with super conservative assumptions, right? And the range of outcomes of that 12% is it could be a 10% IRR or it could be a 15. But do you see how not many people think about it in terms of a range of outcomes in the volatility of the return? Because the person who's trying to get to a 20% IRR, they might get a bridge loan at 85% and put in a ton of CapEx and try to juice this thing as far as they can juice it to get that 20% IRR because that's what they promised investors. But what happens is, oh, there's a fire at the, there's a fire uh, on the property. And all of a sudden I had a two-year loan at super high leverage and now I get foreclosed and my return went to zero, right? But I need to get to 20% IRR. Whereas the 10% guy, 10% IRR, 15% IRR guy said, well, I'm just going to get a long-term Fannie Freddie. And even if it takes me five years or six years to hit this return, I'm going to hit it. And I have four years left on my loan and I'm not going to get foreclosed on, right? And so that shift in thinking um, from just instead of looking at an absolute rate of return, understanding that it typically is the volatility of the return that you are getting from that. So. That makes sense. I think as uh, I think another way I would state that is the if I'm understanding as the value goes up, the error bars get bigger as the projection goes. Yeah, up. the yeah the returns. Yeah, the returns. Yeah, if if you're projecting higher returns, and and obviously it's it's not 100, percent but it's just that's just thinking in that framework because instead of just looking at absolute returns, understanding what is the risk adjusted return, I guess is what most people say, but looking at, all right, what are the risks in the deal that could cause this to go to zero? Because if it goes to zero, you know, that's Warren Buffett's rule number one is, I mean, you can't lose principal because it takes (laughs) you that much longer to get it back. Right. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I like that. A few years ago, I was at a conference I'm one a few years ago now, real estate conference and speaker on stage says, everybody today says they underwrite conservatively. And I was like, thought about it. I said, yeah, they do. Everybody says that. I'm projecting 20% IRR, but it's conservative underwriting just because I say it's conservative. No, come on, man. You got to prove that. So we'll circle back around, see if you've got an answer for number two. What is the worst investment you ever made? (laughs) Not as fine. Um, I'm I'm like at a loss of words. for I I should be able to think of something. I think a lot of... I mean, can, can... can I modify the question? <laughs> Go for it. You're the guest. To me is what should I spend more money on is, um, and, and I don't, and I don't think I like simple things like, like this chair, I should probably spend more money on this chair and my phone and my, my camera and things like that. Like, I think in today's day and age, I think like thinking about your purchases more as investments versus just purchases is, is hard for me because I've just grown up in an era where I grew up with Dave Ramsey. I grew up with, you know, you should pay off everything and you should just, you know, buy, drive a used car till it, the wheels fall off. <laughs> so thinking about things as an investment that improve the quality of, of your life. And, you know, I'll throw out another name, a guy that I've been following the last year. I, I don't know if you've known him, Naval Ravikant. Have you heard of him? Yeah, I think I've heard him on maybe on okay. Tim Ferriss' podcast. He was on right? Tim Ferriss' yeah. podcast. And then, yeah, he had a great line and it was just essentially like, give yourself a hourly rate. And if it's a thousand an hour, if there's anything that 
you can outsource or hire someone to do, and it's less than that, your hourly rate, you should do that. And so that is a rule that I'm trying to implement. <laughs> that's, that's great. I, I agree with that. I've implemented that in some ways myself to, to take the example of the chair right after uh, COVID started, I bought myself a nice Ikea chair, even though I've only ever had crappy desk chairs. Yeah. I realized I spend so many hours a week in this chair. My old one was killing my back. I mean, why spend, you know, I got the money, buy a nice yeah. chair and spend so much time in it. Absolutely. So, yeah, really, really totally agree with that. Well, James, thank you for joining us today, giving us all this insight into multifamily investing today and what you look for in your passive investments. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to find you wherever on social, your website, whatever, where can they find you? So you can start, you can just Google my name. First thing that will come up is probably LinkedIn. So James Zang on LinkedIn, on YouTube, I have a, I have a very small fo- following of subscribers, but if you want to jump on there, I've probably done... Pre-COVID, I probably had five videos on YouTube. Post-COVID, I probably done 150. So a lot of videos on YouTube. Uh, Old Capital Podcast is uh, the company that I work for and that we put out probably one a week on the podcast circuit. And uh, we interview aspiring multifamily owners who basically are trying to go from, they usually have closed one or two deals and they're trying to grow to 10 to 15 to 20 deals. And then just our website, oldcapitallending.com. Nice. I've one thing I appreciate or many things I appreciate about your show is it's, I mean, it's, it's in the weeds, right? This is expert level real estate, multifamily nerd stuff. I mean that in the best way possible, right? So <laughs> listeners out there, if you're, if you're trying to get, you know, deep into the weeds, that is definitely the show to listen to. So thank you for putting that out there in the universe. And thank you for joining us once again today. Thanks to everybody out there for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated and it helps other people learning to sh- learn about the show. Speaking of YouTube, we are now live streaming on YouTube. So if you'd like to join these conversations live, look up Passive Wealth Strategies on YouTube and hit subscribe and notify and all that good stuff. And you can join the conversation live. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. In the first year, and I can see how you got to those numbers. And I understand the forecast is not going to be perfect. But if I can see that for the next two to three years, and I like the property, I drive the property, I like the sponsor, then I'm usually good to go on investing in that deal. Cool. Interesting. Good. I'm glad I asked that question. Well, right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, James, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I hope so. All right. (laughs) I'm sure you are. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? I'm still trying to think about this answer. You know, I think I mean, is it, I guess it's not fair to say podcasts, but it's almost like headphones Mm, mm -hmm. (laughs) because I would say in the last, I would say in the last four or five years, I have learned more from podcasts, from things like that, but it's been, it's not because I've been necessarily been in the car, but when I'm anywhere, I can just pop in headphones and listen to anything. Um, so I would say, I, I don't know if that's a cop-out answer, uh, but 
that's that's probably podcasts have probably changed my life more than anything in the last four or five years. Good. Well, no, I I don't think it's a cop out answer. You're investing <laughs> your your time in it. They're free. I think headphones is the, an even better answer, right? I have a a nice pair of headphones. Are getting kind of old now, yeah. but you know why cheap out on that? Especially if you listen to them all the time. Like get a nice pair. Spend some money. Get the warranty if you're concerned about them going bad. But you know, enjoy. Okay, I'm gonna to I'm gonna modify my answer sure. slightly. So I bought two things pre-COVID. Um, I bought a Logitech webcam and a, a Blue Yeti mic. And so when I record uh, podcasts or even YouTube videos or whatever, or Zoom meetings, so all I've done in the last year is Zoom meetings, <laughs> that has, I hope, improved the quality of those interactions. And I, you know, we've hired people, we've won deals, we've, you know, all those things have been better because of those two things. So to me, in the next year, webcam, mic um, are going to be key components to um, improving your business. Absolutely. I totally agree. It only feels, I have a Logitech as well. Sometimes yeah. you get on a call with a guy who's obviously got like a DSLR or something really sweet. And it's like, I, don't, I can't drop and you that feel much. Inadequate. Yeah, exactly. And you feel <laughs> inadequate at that point. And <laughs> it's all until, you know, you do a video with somebody and they're on their phone, right? And... <laughs> And right. it's horizontal. It's just the vertical. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? I'm trying. I mean, you know, I like to think, I mean, I'm a pretty positive guy. And so even if I completely blow money on something, I always look for the positive spin on it. I'm trying to think of, I got to come back. Can we come back to that one? Sure. Yeah, think about it. I don't know. Well, my favorite question Dana show number three, what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? So I'm going to steal this from Howard Marks. Are you familiar with Howard Marks? I know his name, but I don't know why. Okay. Howard Marks, he is, um, he writes a memo uh, for Oak Tree Capital. So he started Oak Tree Capital and he puts out a memo for the last 30 years. So he is a distressed, a distressed debt investor. And when he puts out his memos, he, uh, Warren Buffett's like, if it hits my email, it's the first thing I read. And he, he wrote a book called The Most Important Thing. And one of the things he talked about is a lot of times people think that the higher the return something is, the better it is. So when you look at investment pitches from syndicators and things like that, you're like, okay, this is a 20% IRR versus a 15. Which one do I take? Most people take the 20, but usually within that 20, that means that the volatility of that investment is that much higher. So the volatility of that actual return happening is actually probably a spread of, it could go to zero or it could be a 40% return. So the chart that he had in his book was really like, okay, if someone's projecting, like a lot of people who I invest with, they are pretty conservative and they have an IRR of 12. And you're like, 12% IRR, who's investing in that deal? It doesn't make any sense. But with super conservative assumptions, right? And the range of outcomes of that 12% is, it could be a 10% IRR or it could be a 15. But do you see how 
not many people think about it in terms of a range of outcomes in the volatility of the return, because the person who's trying to get to a 20% IRR, they might get a bridge loan at 85% and put in a ton of CapEx and try to juice this thing as far as they can juice it to get that 20% IRR, because that's what they promised investors. But what happens is, oh, there's a fire at the, there's a fire uh, on the property. And all of a sudden I had a two-year loan at super high leverage and now I get foreclosed and my return went to zero, right? But I need to get to 20% IR. Whereas the 10% guy, 10% IRR, 15% IRR guy said, well, I'm just going to get a long-term Fannie Freddie. And even if it takes me five years or six years to hit this return, I'm going to hit it. And I have four years left on my loan and I'm not going to get foreclosed on, right? And so that shift in thinking, um, from just instead of looking at an absolute rate of return, understanding that it typically is the volatility of the return that you are getting from that. So that makes sense. I think as uh, I think another way I would state that is the if I'm understanding as the value goes up, the error bars get bigger as the projection goes. Yeah, up. the yeah the returns. Yeah, the returns. Yeah, if if you're projecting higher returns, and and obviously it's it's not 100, percent but it's just that's just thinking in that framework, because instead of just looking at absolute returns, understanding what is the risk adjusted return, I guess is what most people say, but looking at, all right, what are the risks in the deal that could cause this to go to zero? Because if it goes to zero, you know, that's Warren Buffett's rule number one is, I mean, you can't lose principal because it takes (laughs) you that much longer to get it back. Right. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I like that. A few years ago, I was at a conference more than a few years ago now, real estate conference and speaker on stage says, everybody today says they underwrite conservatively. And I was like, thought about it. I said, yeah, they do. Everybody says that. I'm projecting 20% IRR, but it's conservative underwriting just because I say it's conservative. No, come on, man. You got to prove that. So we'll circle back around, see if you've got an answer for number two. What is the worst investment (laughs) you ever made? Not it's fine. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm like at a loss of words. Were, hey, that's fine. Were, um, I, I should be able to think of something. I think a lot of... I mean, can, can I modify the question? <laughs> Go for it. You're the guest. To me is, what should I spend more money on? Is, um, and, and, I don't, and I don't think I... Like simple things like, like this chair, I should probably spend more money on this chair and my phone and my, my camera and things like that. Like I think... In today's day and age, I think like thinking about your purchases more as investments versus just purchases is is hard for me because I've just grown up in an era where I grew up with Dave Ramsey. I grew up with you know you should pay off everything and you should just you know buy drive a used car till it, the wheels fall off. <laughs> so thinking about things as an investment that improve the quality of, of your life. And, you know, I'll throw out another name, a guy that I've been following the last year. I, I don't know if you've known him, Naval Ravikant. Have you heard of him? Yeah, I think I've heard him on maybe on okay. Tim Ferriss podcast. He was on uh-huh. Tim Ferriss's yeah. podcast. And then, yeah, he had a great line and it was just essentially like, give yourself a hourly rate. And if it's a thousand an hour, if there's anything that you can outsource or hire someone to do, and it's less than that, your hourly rate, you should do that. And so that is a rule that I'm trying to implement. <laughs> that's, that's great. I, I agree with that. I've implemented that in some ways myself to 
to take the example of the chair right after uh, COVID started, I bought myself a nice Ikea chair, even though I've only ever had crappy desk chairs. Yeah. I realized I spend so many hours a week in this chair. My old one was killing my back. I mean, why spend, you know, I got the money, buy a nice yeah. chair and spend so much time in it. Absolutely. So, yeah, really, really totally agree with that. Well, James, thank you for joining us today, giving us all this insight into multifamily investing today and what you look for in your passive investments. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to find you wherever on social, your website, whatever, where can they find you? So you can start, you can just Google my name. First thing that will come up is probably LinkedIn. So James Ng on LinkedIn, on YouTube, I have a, I have a very small fo- following of subscribers, but if you want to jump on there, I've probably done... Pre-COVID, I probably had five videos on YouTube. Post-COVID, I probably done 150. So a lot of videos on YouTube. Uh, Old Capital Podcast is uh, the company that I work for and that we put out probably one a week on the podcast circuit. And uh, we interview aspiring multifamily owners who basically are trying to go from, they usually have closed one or two deals and they're trying to grow to 10 to 15 to 20 deals. And then just our website, oldcapitallending.com. Nice. I've one thing I appreciate or many things I appreciate about your show is it's, I mean, it's, it's in the weeds, right? This is expert level real estate, multifamily nerd stuff. I mean that in the best way possible, right? So <laughs> listeners out there, if you're, if you're trying to get, you know, deep into the weeds, that is definitely the show to listen to. So thank you for putting that out there in the universe. And thank you for joining us once again today. Thanks to everybody out there for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated and it helps other people learning the sh- learn about the show. Speaking of YouTube, we are now live streaming on YouTube. So if you'd like to join these conversations live, look up Passive Wealth Strategies on YouTube and hit subscribe and notify and all that good stuff. And you can join the conversation live. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.